welcome to the Beekeeper's Corner Podcast. March 6, 2022, episode 206, Keep Your Distance. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 206 of the Beekeeper's Corner. I'm Kevin England. It's a rainy Sunday, and I had a peek yesterday into a few hives to see where things are in anticipation of spring, which should come anytime now. I really haven't let it soak in yet, what I saw and what to do with it. I would rather savor the moment and feel as if the possibilities are limitless. And there's nothing like the fresh scent of a new season. Yeah, it's. I'm getting that excitement right now. I'm feeling like it's time to start getting organized. And, you know, as I look at the day, it's early in the morning on Sunday. Rain all day today. Good day to work in the garage, kind of take stock of things. That's about where my headspace is. I'm getting ahead of myself, and I should stay on task and talk about what we have in store with the show. So with no further ado, lackluster Apivar. Is it finally time to consider that Apivar has lost its punch? The Canadians think so. Roundtable number two, it's always cool to run across features. In national magazines, on the news, on TV, on the radio, on podcasts that feature people you know personally or when things have a hometown local association. I have two of those in one telling and I'll share it with you when we get there. Roundtable number three, I think we have all come to grasp the phrase social distancing when it relates to COVID. But did you know that our bees practice it? I'll tell you what the researchers say about that. Roundtable number four, a few tips to get you on the right track for spring. One being not to forget to put out some water. That's it for roundtable odds and ends. What will follow that is not one, not two, but three topics. Tapachi time. That's topic number one. Topic number two, it seems our girls may have learned something new. The concept of apoptosis as it relates to our European honeybees. And rounding out the episode is topic number three, part two, subsection A, paragraph five. No, (laughs) I'm just joshing on that. It truly is part number two of learning how to make mead. We'll finish up the episode with our first true local hive report of 2022. And in case I forgot anything, when we get there, we'll stick them in the closing comments. Pretty sure this is not going to be another two-hour marathon like the last episode, but best get to it. Let's head to roundtable number one. Roundtable number one, lackluster Apavar. Our lead-off for this episode is not really a welcome development, but it seems it's been a long time coming. And given what I see outside in our yard, 
and from what I've observed over the last few years, the assessment seems right on the money. In an article published out of Manitoba, Canada, entitled Varroa Mite Protection for Bees Losing Its Punch, Canadian beekeepers have shared their impression that Apivar has demonstrated lower control rates in some instances, and while it was originally measured at 90% effective, the assertion now is that it might be closer to 80% or even lower. I look at this and at other findings from beekeepers I know, and it makes me take a pause. Locally here in New Jersey, beekeepers have been speculating as to if there is a problem, but being careful not to discount the product too early, as it is, one might say, one of the easier and more convenient products to use. More on that in a second. But to the point, Sometimes what might present as an ineffective product could actually be because of some other things in play. When Tim Schuler was the state apiarist a few years ago, he pinged me one day to ask a question. Did I happen to see the bees propolizing the strips? It was the first time I took awareness that the product was not simply stick it in the hive and the treatment is guaranteed. What is at the center of that notion is that Apivar is just that, a contact miticide. And if a beekeeper inserts the product in the hive and does not take measures to ensure that bees can physically come into contact with the strips, it's not going to do its thing. This concern has manifested over the years to suggestions that you physically spread out the frames where the strips are inserted so there's more room and that you... Do not use that built-in tab, but hang it from a nail through the hole because the design of that triangle tab thing often leads to the strip being skewed, resulting in it twisting and pressing against the comb. And, you know, when it's pressing against a comb, there's no contact to that side. Suspended from the nail, it hangs perpendicular to the gap and both sides are accessible. Then there is the added instruction, this is somewhat new in our area, that partway through the treatment of the 56 days, you should move the strips around and take measures to clean the surfaces off. To me, all these recommendations seem practical. You know, why you should take these measures. I get why they work. But they were also signs that these compensation steps were manifesting because Perceptions didn't match reality. We used to think, put it in there, and it would work. Now, these countermeasures and tweaks were being sought after in an attempt to assure efficacy, fix the problem. And going one step further, I postulated that they do not seem to do the job during population booms. And anecdotally, I have guessed that it's simply a matter of big colonies have so many bees and that thwarts the widespread contact that's required. That can be somewhat borne out. If you look at a use, I know some suggest, which is to use the strips in early winter and when the bees are on the cluster. A low quantity of bees all coming into contact seems to be an effective combination. And coming back to that notion I shelved a few moments ago, there is one major advantage about Apivar when it comes to options during high temperatures. It is not susceptible to concessions when the temps are high like some of the acid-based treatments. 
and specifically Formic Pro. When you put your Honey Supers in the high heat of July and August, it is a match when it's hot to slip in an Apivar strip when the Honey Supers are off. The problem here, though, is what we spoke of. These are times of peak population for many colonies. And if you do the math, well, it kind of adds up. Big populations doesn't, doesn't do very good. Now, all these things are speculation, and there could simply be another thing at play. Mites have become resistant to the product. It was known from the get-go that this was a likely thing to happen. And maybe, well, that's just a simple answer to what our friends in the North are reporting. We beekeepers will have to wait for the industry to look into this and tell us scientifically what's going on. But many beekeepers I know have had their suspicions for a while. And, you know, they've been considering alternatives, something like oxalic acid vaporizations. And they're starting to test the waters with that. I had discussed this with my inner circle of beekeepers that I keep in touch with. And last year, I used up my remaining Apivar strips in our collection and had suggested that this might be the year when I consider foregoing any replacement purchases. I do have to say that I did take advantage of the convenience of it here and there, but never really loved the method of synthetic miticides from the beginning. It sure seems like a compelling reason to wean ourselves from the practice. I'll have a link to the article in the show notes. Varroa mite protection product for the bees losing its punch. Roundtable number two, local beekeepers on a national stage. The latest Women's Health magazine has a beekeeping feature about some beekeepers from our home county, which is, by my way of thinking, really cool. The article entitled Promised Land, How Black Beekeepers Are Taking Back Control of Farming, features the journey of Kingwood, New Jersey beekeepers Cam and Summer Johnson. This has a local connection as we have found their Zach and Zoe line of products once upon a time, literally in our hometown Stockton Market here in Hunterdon County. To make that even more evident, we have us, we the Englands, have a Stockton, New Jersey mailing address. That tells you how local it is to us. To elaborate even further about the piece in women's health, there are features on other black beekeepers in there, and lo and behold, our own Tamika Chang is front and center in the piece. Tamika's a friend and one of our vice presidents and a fellow beekeeper in my beloved Northwest New Jersey Beekeepers Association. I found the article well-written, and while I kind of knew the Zach and Zoe presence in our area, it sheds some light on more of the backstory and nature of their operation. I didn't know that the business originated from New York City. How big it was, what the inspiration was, only that the business had a tie to some funding from Shark Tank, and it appeared to be very well run given any exposure that came to our awareness. I'm a sucker for someone sharing their pursuit in beekeeping and expressing how it has woven its way into one's life. I find the interactions with bees captivating and learning of each person's personal journey fascinating. And the article covers not only the Johnson's journey and Tamika's journey, but it includes Nicole Linde from Detroit, a backstory on a North Carolina beekeeper, Samantha Fox Winship, and more. 
Each of them are different in their own right, and I can tell you that there's even more to Tamika's story if you dig a little deeper. It is always a pleasure to see features on our local beekeepers, and this one's worth a read. Look for a link in our show notes, and I had spoken to Tamika about coming on the show. That's been a to-do on the to-do list for way too long. Tamika's on Instagram and other social media outlets, and I honestly don't know if I know someone that has more irons in the fire at any given point. She's like a kindred spirit in that way, in that she's super eager to soak it all in and dive right in when there's something to be learned. Yes, I'm going to have to see if I can get her in here to share her story, and if I can convince her to find the time for me. Uh, Really, it's my fault, not hers. Uh, I need to get my act together. The show notes will have a link to the Zach and Zoe, Zoe spelling Z-O-E, website. And you can find Tamika on social media as the Holland Homestead and or with the ID The Black Beekeeper. Roundtable number three called this one, You Social Distancing, a little play on words there. There was an article in the SciTech Daily October edition that gave synopsis of a behavioral quality in the honeybee superorganism that struck a chord with researchers and given our newfound knowledge of COVID worldwide, supports a behavior not unlike the strategy of social distancing to keep a population healthy. A study published in the Science Advances indicates that the operation of a honeybee colony has a somewhat built-in defense mechanism for protecting the future of their colony by inherent design of its operations. To be more specific, it focuses on the operation of foragers and specifically how they tend to do their work in the periphery of the hive space and not within the nest area housing the young. This compartmentalization is their way of thinking somewhat analogous to social distancing. We have long known that there are many duties in the hive and that age plays a role in who does what and where they do it, coupled with the logical nest design that has evolved over millennia, consistently results in a colony design in our bee colonies. You can go from one to the next to the other. They're kind of structured the same way. What is different based upon the findings from the study behind the article's summation is that not only do the bees employ an organized space with everything in its place, but they actually change things up when Varroa are present and go as far as modifying the space using a social interaction that increases the social distancing between the farger activity and what goes on with the nurse bees caring for the young. The outcome from their summary says, quote, These findings strongly suggest a behavioral strategy not previously reported in honeybees to limit the intracolony parasite transmission, end quote. The study, titled, Honeybees Increase Social Distancing When Facing the Ectoparasite Varroa Destructor, Look to see if bees carrying varroa mites might act differently given the perceived threat to the mother colony. The study explanation presented it this way, quote, In this work, we investigated whether the presence of the ectoparasite mite V destructor in honeybee colonies induces changes in the social immunity strategies that could reduce the spread of the parasite. We focused on 
space use and social interaction patterns, which are two features affecting organizational immunity, end quote. To sum up another fundamental of the research, they compared and contrasted behaviors and patterns of bees operating in a colony that was free from varroa and colonies impacted by varroa to see if any material differences were evident in the behaviors like the waggle dance, the round dance performed by the foragers, and aller grooming, which is one bee grooming another. In the dance arena, in particular confirming predictions, the relative frequency of dances was significantly higher in the lateral frame and significantly lower in the central frame in the infested group compared to the uninfested group. Foraging dance behavior also varied depending on the position within the comb in relation to the hive entrances. Now the dances were more frequently in the lower position near the entrance and less frequently at the lower central position observed in the mite free colony. In particular, conforming to the predictions that they were trying to prove, the relative frequency of foraging dances on cat brood cells was much lower in the varroa infested colonies compared to the varroa free colonies. When it came to grooming, the frequency did not increase between the varroa-infested colonies and the varroa-free ones, but the place in which it took place was different. You know, they, they understood that the relative frequency of the observed allegrooming events was not significantly different between the two, but when they looked at it, they found a significantly higher frequency of allegrooming events in the central frame compared to the lateral ones in the infested colonies. The summary of the research states the findings in this way, quote, Our study demonstrates that honeybee colonies react to the invasion of an ectoparasite mite with significant changes in behavioral traits associated with social immunity, meaning space used and social interactions, at both the whole colony and the individual level. These findings strongly suggests that honeybees limit the spread of parasites within the colony by social distancing. End quote. How, co how cool is that? And, you know, kudos to these folks for thinking this is what social distancing is and making the connection. Um, it's only a matter of observation that you could probably think to design this experiment and see whether or not it's happening. Now, of course, in COVID, we associate this with social distancing and things like that. It's probably been going on pre-COVID and now we have something to call it, but still kind of neat to see that the bees have adapted and just shows again how amazing they are as little creatures. Roundtable number four, I call this one Wooder. The other day I was doing a sim racing esports broadcast with a new broadcasting company that I'm working with and the announcer I was paired up with was out of Texas, asked me where I was from. Before I answered he said that he was trying to figure out where I was from from my accent. Before I could answer him my mind locked up exploring his question, do I have a discernible accent? That's a foreign notion to me. You know, growing up back in the day when you listened to AM, then FM radio, we listened to WABC. No, hold on. Music radio, WABC, 
Dan Ingram, New York. Had to do that. I think I've done that on this show before. The radio jocks there had that hip New York style and a worldwide sound that people wanted to sound like. The other analog for that was Dick Clark, the clean cut, slick style on our TVs every week with American Bandstand. This made me think that where we live in New Jersey is kind of special because we naturally sound like those guys around here. It's just the way we talk. We have that New York kind of patter to us. The pronunciation, the dictation, the cadence, the speed, you get the point. I should say that we sound like that mostly in my area, but we're a little bit of tune in this section of New Jersey, and I kind of look to our other metropolis to the south of us, Philadelphia, for that. Now to the point of this roundtable, the one word I know that gives me an accent is how we say water around here. Water has a crisp T sound when pronounced properly, but the Philly folks make that a bit murky by changing it up to water. The crisp T becomes a muddy D. Another tweak is the A slides over to a U, like U-boat, and instead of water, it becomes water. Think of W followed by utter, like the kind you find on a cow. So yeah, sometimes we Jerseyans halfway between the New York and Philly area say water. You know what, beekeepers? It's water time. <laughs> How about that for a lead into a round table? This time of year, you should be planning your water delivery system for your bees. I've covered this a good number of times on the program, so I'll not go down the rabbit hole of the full Monty, but I'll just cover the essentials. Option one is to place water in a container that is fabricated in some way so that it will not overflow and place your floaties all over the place next to your container. You need some floaties in there for the bees to land on. The basic setup that I know of is a five gallon pail with something floating in it like cork or wood chips or Packing peanuts, and no, not the kind you soak that melt. You drill some holes in the side of the top of the bucket so that if the rain fills it up, it will not flow out. It'll go out the holes, and your floaties won't end up on the ground next to the bucket. Another option is to create some sort of water feature that allows the water to drip and collect. Bees are drawn to water features which drip and collect. Sometimes people create a rock garden and they put a little faucet around it. The faucet is left to drip and fill the rock garden all the time. Bees land on the rocks and they get their drink on. I'm going to be brief, so I'm not going to talk about how to build a water feature, but I shared that so you could visualize the alternative approach. Most beekeepers that I know employ the bucket strategy, and when I say bucket, it doesn't literally have to be a bucket. It could be any type of tub. Some people use dog bath pools and such. As long as it holds water and you have some means to keep it from overflowing so your floaties are not laying next to the container. Last thing to say about this is to consider your neighborhood. And if there's any swimming pools in your vicinity, placement-wise... You want your bees to fly over your water source en route to whatever would be the swimming pool destination. It is likely they're going to stop for water being closer and negate heading over to your neighbor's pool. You can up that ante some, and you should, 
by building an attraction to the water through sprinkling some salt in it or giving it some kind of aroma. Some common things to use, a couple drops of lemongrass oil, maybe some drops of anise, which is a favorite scent of the bees. I know beekeepers that even put bleach in the water, you know, to stem the mosquitoes, but it also gives it a flavor, which if you think about a swimming pool, it's not harmful to the bees. They drink pool water perfectly fine and it will help negate the mosquitoes growing during the height of the season. At minimum, when you put your water out, every once in a while, you should just go make sure that it's got some water in it. Obviously, a dry bucket is not going to do. And give it a little stir. The stir agitates it and prevents any mosquito larvae from forming, should that be what's going on over there. When you choose a vessel, choose something that's big enough to hold a lot of water so that if you miss refilling it and get into a dry stretch, it'll still contain some water. Don't be too fussy about cleaning it out. In fact, it doesn't have to be pristine clean because, as we said, bees prefer water that's a little on the dirty side. So take Kevin's advice. It's water time. If you happen to remember and want to reminisce about the WABC Dan Ingram show, take a look at the show notes. I've shared a little ditty on that there. And it's going to bring you back to that moment at a YouTube video that has a montage of all the old school WABC sound clips from, I'm dating myself, December 1973. Before I leave this topic of spring maintenance, there's one other one that I wanted to throw on the pile this year. It has to do with dealing with hives that did not make it through the winter. You know, there's a couple of schools of thought, and I just want to put this out here and ask you to think it through, come up with a plan. Here's the scenario. Maybe you had a hive sitting off to the side that did not make it. What do you do with it? The proper advice, even if you're in limbo, is to close it off. Don't let the bees have access to it. I will say that because there's one of two ways you can go. I know universally a lot of beekeepers who just take that hive and redistribute its resources back into the fold and think nothing of it. Is that a risky thing to do? If you're a conservative person, it might be. But a typical beekeeper is pragmatic about wasting the resources. And I want to split what resources are available in half and talk about them separately because I think that makes a difference. The first one, and it's a no-brainer, is capped honey. If there's any capped honey in that dead out, chances are it's perfectly fine for consumption, and that I would not hesitate with a wave of a hand to distribute to all of the other colonies. One asterisk on that. Is it capped honey proper honey, or is it capped honey from sugar solution that got fed to the bees and I'll call that funny honey. If you're going to distribute funny honey, put it down in the brood chamber next to the bees so that they use it as a resource and don't stick it in some place that somewhere later on in the summer, if you forgot, you're going to harvest it out and consider it something that you're going to jar. So keep track of that as you go along. Now, there were two parts to it. We talked about the capped honey part. The rest of it is all either drawn or specifically brood comb. Now, if we think about, generally, a hive that did not make it through the winter, 
Almost universally, when you figure out what's what, it had to do with varroa mites. It's not always the case, and I'm not saying it is, but if you took the bees that were collected on the bottom board and did a wash, you might find that they were varroa mites. You also might find that if you had a big infestation over the summer, and the bees were all sick going into winter, and they just couldn't hang on to spring, then it was varroa mite infested, but you might not find signs of varroa mite. The reason to point this all out is that varroa mites carry viruses and other nasties, and if the bees are sick, it's possible, plausible, that some of that could be transferred into the brood comb area. Now, I'm going to say it again. I know over and over again, beekeepers cherish drawn comb, and they take that comb and put it right back in and don't think twice of it. I think if you've done that season after season and you have some of that really old dark mahogany comb or something that's been in service for quite a while, reusing that comb should be a doink on the head. Maybe your comb's too old and that's why the bees died. So, you know, you need to kind of have records. I write on my frames when the foundation was put in. And I know, looking at a frame, that it's been serviced one, two, three years or more. If it's got old comb in it, something that's three years or older, I'm going to pull it out, I'm going to cut it out, and I'm going to get rid of it. So this is food for thought. When you have a colony that perishes over the winter, before the active forage season comes, close the thing off. One of the first things I would do with all my colonies, and you can kind of think of this, and I'm going to say this, and, and I want you to be very careful, and again, analyze what I'm saying. Suppose you had a couple colonies that did not make it through. You could collect all the honey and take them and stick them in a separate box and take all the brood comb out and put them in another box and leave the honey box open and put it somewhere on your property and let the bees come and raid it out. Or you could take it and distribute it into new colonies or save it to put in nukes. One thing you could do with it, of course, is freeze it and make sure that you kill anything that might be floating in there. But look, I, I'm, I want you to evaluate your situation and think about how you repurpose or get rid of any liabilities from dead outs. Don't just, you know be a robot and take those things and put them back in service. Do give it some thought about what the actual asset means to you, how much of a liability it is, and then make your plan. And I'll leave it there. Well, what do you know? We've crossed the divide and it's time to head into the other side of the episode. Topic number one, I call this one Tapache Time. If you listen to the show, then you know through the COVID break, I've been on overkill when it comes to making homemade extracts and some specialty alcohol liqueurs, vanilla, cinnamon, peach, apricot, almond, star anise, coffee, chocolate, various citrus extracts, and um, a dozen more gives you a sense that I've been having a lot of fun with this little side exploration. The step up from simple extracts to make some liqueurs is rather short and making a lemon extract is the gateway to limoncello, hazelnuts for frangelico and yes I've gone down that rabbit hole too. In fact I have a homemade batch of amaretto going right now. 
I recently racked off the other cousin of this sojourn, my first batches of homemade mead, of which I'll talk about a little later. So it's no surprise that I took interest to a Facebook post by one of our RVBA members about fermented beverage called tapache that you can make with honey. So credit goes to Christine Miller for making me aware of this sweetened pineapple-based fermented beverage that looks really interesting and it makes it seem so approachable and akin to making a kombucha. So let's talk about tapache and a little more about what the finished product is. The reason it compares to a kombucha is that after you make the drink, it's slightly alcoholic due to the nature of it being a fermented beverage. The base of the tapache is the twist as it employs the use of the rind or the skin of the pineapple as well as its pulp. The drink origin is from Old World Mexico, and if you're being truly authentic, the process is simply pineapple, peels, water, and piloncillo poured into a clay pot until it ferments to your liking. Piloncillo is a style of sugar not unlike what we call brown sugar in the U.S. While that basic process and its ingredients would yield you a tasty beverage, time has allowed for some enhancements. And if you search for a tapache recipe today on the web, you'll see a widely diverse eclectic mix of other ingredients that have worked their way into drink formulations and those are considered tapache. Common augmentations include cinnamon, clove, ginger, and in various regions, some even add hot peppers, star anise, and other things. It kind of starts with the base, and then apparently you can steep whatever you want to achieve the taste that complements the pineapple flavor. Tart, sour, spicy, combination of those things, there seems to be a lot of latitude. As to the tie for beekeeping, like the latitude for add-ons, you can also look to swap out the piloncello component for honey. Given the original sugar has a deep profile from the sugar caramelization, it might be a good idea to use a darker honey or one that has a more pronounced flavor along the line of molasses. Saying it differently, a light floral honey is probably better left on the shelf. Go for something with a little more gusto. You know, like a fall goldenrod or even a buckwheat honey. In fact, what turned Chris on to this was the encounter of a tapache recipe in the book Beehive Alchemy. The author is Petra Arnert, A-H-N-E-R-T. Now, a short aside about this book, it seems that there are a few versions of that particular book in rotation. The one Chris used appears to be the 2018 version, and it has a burnt orange block in the center of the book design cover, and not the one with the ivory-colored circular graphic, which seems to be an older version. I'll have a link to that version in the show note. The one that Chris used is offered by Amazon. I've never seen the book personally, but it might be something I'm going to add to a Christmas wish list. The recipe from that book, coming back to honey, calls for honey, water, whole cloves, tamarind, and cinnamon. Now, to be respectful to the intellectual capital of the published book, 
I'm sorry, not going to relay the ingredients. Volume, like how much to use. Instead, I'm going to share an alternative recipe published from a food blog. And by my way of thinking, has more appealing ratios of the ingredients. By that, I will share that the internet version has a touch more cinnamon, uses more honey, which I like, if you ask me. And by my way of thinking and being a study of recipes, I feel it would produce a more flavorful, flavorful drink than the Alchemy Book one. So, with no further delay, here's a recipe for tapache. The rundown of ingredients are one medium-sized pineapple, prepared as directed, two cinnamon sticks, two whole cloves, one inch thumb of ginger cut into coins. There's no need to peel the ginger here. One half cup of dark honey or whatever kind of honey you have, as long as it's not store-bought, if you know what I mean. Four cups of lukewarm water, and optionally one tamarind pod. And, you know, this is optional, but sometimes they're hard to find. But it's an interesting addition. Tamarind might be something that's unfamiliar, and it's true for me personally, as I've never used it. The source website for the recipe professes that the taste of tamarind is a bit citrusy and a bit sweet and sometimes imparts a little caramel flavor and a bit of tang. It also cautions, use it sparingly, and then if you find that you like it, you can add more. In the case of the recipe, it couples really well with the pineapple and it adds a little difference to the complexity of the flavor. If you take a moment, Kevin moment, to think about the ingredients here, before I tell you how to concoct this, I will say that what I've noticed is nutritionists love the profile of this drink because of the wholesomeness of the ingredients. Yeah, it's got quite a bit of sugars in it, but especially if you're using honey instead of sugar and the probiotic nature of it, as well as the vitamins from the ingredient list that we just gave you, it's said to be good for your health and good for your tummy. And as to being alcoholic, the fermentation is very lightweight and it's considered to be a low alcohol beverage. The process of making it takes advantage of the natural yeasts and living organisms on the skins of the pineapple. So unlike other recipes that you use pineapple for, you really have to the skins here more than the pulp. I think it's kind of cool that you make this in the open air and use the yeasts off the pineapple exterior, but there is, by my way of thinking, still a cleanliness factor to consider. When I made this, and I did, I cleaned the jar before using it. I cleaned the implements, I washed my hands with soap and water, and then I rinsed them scrupulously to get the soap off so that I would not impart any flavor when handling the pineapple. I realize this is fermenting in the open air, but I still think it's prudent to say, keep things hygienic and let the natural yeasts do the flavorings. End of Kevin moment. Here's the process. Step one, wash any errant dirt and or debris off the outer surface of the pineapple. Your job here is not to scrub the surface clean, more like make sure nothing errants on the surface. 
Number two, cut the peels away from the pineapple and place them in your large glass vessel. I had to use this uh, container that we sometimes serve lemonade at a party in. It creates a big volume. Chop the core from the pineapple flesh, cut it into bite-sized pieces. Just throw that right into the jar. Cut the fruit of the pineapple into two-inch chunks. Using clean hands, squeeze the chunks to release their juice. It helps if you have a jar big enough that you could stick your hand in so that when you squeeze it and it spurts all over, it stays inside the jar. Depending on how dexterous you are, you could do this over the jar or you could do it over a bowl and pour it into the jar if you can't get your hand in the jar. The objective here really is to release some of the juices from the pulp or as much as you can and to crush the flesh of the fruit. I have a citrus juice tool that squeezes lemon juice from the lemon halves and I found that you could put the chunk of pineapple in there and squeeze it over the jar. Worked perfectly. It also squeezed the pineapple chunk into a flat round cup and I took that and dropped it right into the jar. A Kevin moment. There's a shorter side that might influence which approach you take. Some of the more ambitious recipes I saw called for placing the fruit pulp, the water, the honey, and spices into a pan and heating them until they mingled and somewhat formed a syrup, if you will. Then you pour that over the skins, and the inference is that the flavors mingled more if you're going to build this, you know, syrup-building step. From what I know, and to be perfectly candid, my knowledge is quite superficial as this was the first time I ever heard or made this product. The suggestion of heating that step is another example of an elaboration and most recipes would not call for this as part of the recipe procedure. End of Kevin moment. Now that you've got all the pineapple into the jar, it's time to add any spices and or aromatics. The ginger, the cinnamon, the cloves and the tamarind pod, if you're using it, go in the jar and you give it a stir. I use the handle of a washed long handle wooden spoon for this. I turned it over and stuck that in there. When you're done with mixing kind of the base ingredients, pour over the lukewarm water and again give it a stir that allows all the flavors to mingle and distribute the honey. You want to use lukewarm honey so that the water will melt the honey and let it incorporate into the sugar solution. Cover the jar with something that keeps the critters and debris out, cloth, coffee filter, secured with a rubber band, and allow that mixture to sit at room temperature for two to three days. You want to place it in a cool, dry place away from direct sunlight, and do note that it'll be a bit cloudy and might form a harmless little white foam on the top with that fermentation. If it does, you can simply just skim that off before straining. After two or three days, you use a clean spoon to taste. If you like it, you can stop right there. If you want it to go a little more to the funky side, you can go another day or so, but don't go crazy here. To finish your tapachi, filter it into a pitcher. You can filter it through a fine mesh strainer, a cheesecloth, or if you're patient enough, through something like as fine as a coffee filter. Obviously, the finer the filter, the clearer the final product will be. Place that pitcher in the refrigerator. Keep it chilled. 
and consume it over ice within a few days of straining. What should it taste like? It's kind of up to whatever you put in it, but it should have a light carbonation, be a little sweet, have of course a pineapple flavoring with enhancements of the spices and aromatics that you put in the background. Given it's fermented, it should also have a touch of that fermented profile to it, meaning a little yeasty. I'm embracing this whole exploration of this space, and when I see something I haven't come across yet, I haven't put it on a someday maybe list. I've jumped in, sourced the ingredients as needed, and I've made it. What's next? Don't tell Sharon. I found a recipe for something called Krupnik. It's an ancient Polish recipe for vodka and honey drink, traditionally served on Christmas Eve during the Wigilia? I don't know what that is. The Polish Christmas Vigil Dinner. It's believed to date back all the way to the Middle Ages, and, you know, why wouldn't you? Try it. Maybe given Sharon's Polish heritage, I'm guessing this is something that her babci liked and had at family events back in the day. So perhaps this one will not be too bad to sneak by. And you won't be surprised to hear me tell you about how to make it in an upcoming episode. So Tapachi has a taste. Hmm. Let's see. Hmm. Sweet. A little bit of sour. Got a bit of a fermented note to it. Yeah, as you can tell, Nostrovia, I made a little batch of it here. What I have is really young. It probably needs a day or two more. I just took a little sip out so I could do a quick tasting here while I was working with you. And, you know, it tastes like pineapple juice. <laughs> what would you expect it to taste like? It has a very pineapple forward. It's sweet. I could taste some of the spices coming through. And it's not just pineapple, that whole pineapple sweet, pineapple juice thing. It's got a bit of an alcohol side to it, almost like a, a apple cider type of uh, flavor to it. And I bet mine needs to go a day or two more that it would be even better than, um, you know, not too bad. It's on a good start. And it seems like it's worth, you know, I was a little worried, like, what do I know about making fermented beverages on the side? And if I turn up daisies in the next couple of days, maybe i <laughs> No, I'm pretty confident that this is not going to cause an issue here. Otherwise, I would not have gone to the lengths I have. But, you know, pretty good. Pretty darn tasty. As you would expect to round this thing out, there'll be a link to the Beehive Alchemy Projects and Recipes using Honey, Beeswax, and Propolis book in the show notes, as well as the web blog inspiration recipe for the tapache that I gave you. The topic number two, apoptosis. The lead for this episode is one that should give you a smile all day long. We've been told that the evolution of our honeybees, and in the case of this topic, specifically our European origin, Eastern Apis, Mellifera honeybees moves at a glacial pace and it will be some time before they can adapt to the impacts of the varroa mite after they jumped from their hosts, the Asian-based western honeybee Apis serrana. There's an interesting aside in this dynamic, which is not a funny haha thing, but an intriguing one nonetheless, 
if you're a scientist, in that researchers can study from an early onset a completely new host-parasite relationship in real time. And they have a parallel existing case when they peek over at the relationship with Rolomites and Apis serrana. I guess if you're a scientist geek, that's kind of cool, but alas, our Apis mellifera honeybees sure are taking a beating. If one to reflect that Apis serrana has evolved to live with Varroa mite, then one could recognize there must be something to examine to learn of their ability to survive with the Varroa presence. And we should be able to contrast those mechanisms with things that are different between the Asian and European honeybees. As you would imagine, this has already been done to some extent. For example, we know that in the Asian bees interaction, Varroa mites have evolved primarily to prey on serrana drones. They don't really impact serrana worker bees. In contrast, we are well aware that Varroa mites impact Mellifera workers, drones, and to some extent, queens in our Mellifera honeybees. This single insight has a very large implication as one of the major impacts to Varroa for our European honeybees is the compromise to our colonies for overwintering. We keepers of European honeybees deal with unhealthy workers going into winter. Imagine the change if it was true that Varroa would only impact our drone population. The impact that Varroa could be managed in the drone only could have a drastic impact to the second half of our beekeeping year as we could keep the Varroa populations down after drones are no longer present in any appreciable numbers post late spring and early summer. Our workers would be healthier and free to feed new developing bees without compromises. And also, since Varroa would not be chomping down on the worker larvae, our workers would not emerge wounded by Varroa mites carrying viruses and subject to other impacts. What a world it would be. Examining the differences, there is another documented example. Biologically, Asian bees emerge from their cells earlier when compared to our European bees. Workers and drones, as example, weigh in this way. Western Asian workers take 19 days. Eastern European workers emerge at 21 days. Western drones are 23, Eastern drones are 24. Drawing the connection on why that matters, it has to do with how long it takes for the Varroa mite in development to mature in the cell. When Varroa are in the developing larva, the longer they have to feed multiply, the more offspring they can make and the more damage they inflict. Shorter time for Western bees nets a slower population growth of Varroa mites overall. Beekeepers in the U.S., gave this its just due and tried the small cell foundation approach. The reason that's in play is kind of odd and has to do with developing bees. It turns out smaller bees, <clears throat> smaller in stature, simply take less time to develop and come out of the cell sooner. How did it turn out? U.S. beekeepers still have Varroa problems after trying this small cell approach, and research showed that it did not have an impact that we thought it would. If we've learned one thing about the 
immunity of a honeybee colony, it is that the superorganism employs a multifaceted approach. And if you think about things we just touched upon, there are just a few things going on and it doesn't end there. Now going one step further, this will bring us to the point of this feature. There is one more example that I want to bring to the discussion and it's the concept of social immunity. In social immunity, the superorganism itself takes measures to protect the overall population. In order to solve the Varroa problem, researchers and beekeepers have been developing this avenue for quite some time, and it's showing some promise. Making this more clear, I want you to consider the premise of hygienic stock. In Asian bees, a sick developing worker will detect damage to a larva that has been fed on by a mite, and it will remove it. To some extent, this social immunity tactic has been found in bread in some of our European bee stock, and one can look to, say, the Minnesota hygienic bees for real-world examples. This inheritable trait that we might desire to emerge is unfortunately going to be slow to spread, but, you know, teams have been working on rearing stock with these genetics in hope that it could be more widespread in our future, but alas, it's not distributed enough to make any meaningful impact. It is, however, interesting to learn that there seems to be a variation on the theme here that scientists have clued in on recently, and what some are describing is an evolutionary change to a lesser-known trait of the Asian bee, and it's possibly emerging in our European bees. To make the connection, I'm going to take us back to 2016. Researchers had documented a phenomena in the 2000s for Apis serrana bees they termed social apoptosis, spelled A-P-O-P-T-O-S-I-S. In human biology, the word apoptosis is often attributed to description of a programmed death in a cell of a living organism. I need to take a moment to unpack that. We have cells in our body. Cell generation and death is a normal part of the life cycle of us, an organism. When a cell ceases to function, we can articulate that that cell has died. But the manner in which it has died has variations or flavors, if you will. A cell that dies due to some external force that ends its function is considered necrosis. I learned that term as an EMT when they told us that dead cells sloughing off a human was a form of necrosis that, upon examination, whatever it is caused those dead cells is referred to as necropsy. A necropsy, incidentally, is what you call an insect autopsy, by the way. Another flavor of it, if you will, of cell death is sensation of the function by the cell itself. Let me say that again cessation of the function of the cell. Again, back to the definition, some cells have a built-in kill switch and they're kind of programmed to die if some specific condition exists. And more importantly, the biological instructions in the cell's DNA will cause it to die. If we can extrapolate that idea to what we're talking about, what honeybees as a superorganism do if they had some mechanism to kill off bad cells before they can impact the host 
as a social immunity tactic. The hygienic behavior of bees uses triggers based on signals from infested brood and or cues from the parasite itself, the varroa in the cell, but the actual signals and cues of what metaphysically is happening with the infested brood needed to be explored further for the scientists and researchers to understand it. And this is at the essence of the hygienic trait of some of these lines that we're seeing. Now, that is the somewhat backstory to how they uncovered apoptosis in honeybees, the quasi-cell die-off of the larva as part of the superorganism. I'm not quite there yet, but just stay with me here. Back to the 2016 journal article summarized social apoptosis in honeybee superorganisms. It suggested that this is true in Asian honeybees, and it turns out they recently have discovered some evidence that European honeybees may be exhibiting the evolution of the tactic like their eastern cousins. In a study released February 7, 2022, from the Oxford Journal of Insect Science Researchers, Kate Eel, Lila de Guzman, Robert Danka published an article with the title Social Apoptosis in Varroa Mite Resistance, Western Honeybees, Apis mellifera. The 2022 paper suggests that researchers observed the tested Apis mellifera lines of bees not only exhibited hygienic traits, this is the key, but there were initial findings that they too have demonstrated some of the apoptosis traits observed in honeybees. To me, this is the first posted result that shows signs of an evolutional change, which is cool, but before I get your hopes up too high, it needs to be said that this is more like an observation than a finding. When you take into consideration that the study parameters and what would be considered real-world conditions, you'll note that you're not going to be running Russian stock of Apis mellifera bees and the pole line bees that they used for this testing. But nonetheless, if they could find it in these bees, it's possible it's happening in our bees. The takeaway is, I think, somewhat of an exercise. But researchers needed to unearth more of the underlying mechanisms of how hygienic behavior manifests, and more specifically, how the larvae itself play a role in self-identifying to the colony that they are having a problem. And this research is one of those places where some of that sub-level understanding is being articulated. So at the risk of going down the rabbit hole, let me see if I could share my understanding and get a little more specific about a trait, a specific hygienic behavior and one of its characteristics that make this thing apoptosis. My sense of what they say happens in Apis serrana is that a sick bee will not only be detected and removed, aka hygiene, but it is somewhat programmed, the actual larva, to succumb early when under pressure and die before it gets taken out of the superorganism and spreads its maladies. Research papers point out that a related behavior in bees known as altruism, 
and they suggest that Apis serrana bees in development, they're impacted by Varroa mites, commit, or are predisposed to die. They even coined a term for this as describing it as altruistic suicide. If you contrast that to understand the difference, while the Apis serrana impacted larvae are dying, the Apis mellifera larvae are trying to live, and they may even fully develop and emerge from the cell and enter into the superorganism and mess it, muck it all up. In this study studied earlier, social apoptosis in honeybee superorganisms, it said, quote, Overall, the development of infested individuals was significantly delayed in Apis serrana compared to Apis mellifera. When we observe larvae or pre-pupa, which is the earliest development stages, one day prior to expected emergence, most of them, the serrana, were decomposed and were obviously dead, end quote. On further to say, quote, altruistic suicide of immature bees constitutes a social analog of apoptosis as it prevents the spread of infections by sacrificing part of the whole organism and unveils a novel form of transgenerational social immunity in honeybees, end quote. What I take away from this is that in 2016, they were able to describe the observations of the Asian honeybees and figure out that the bees were sacrificing themselves. Now in 2020, the study, it's finding it in European honeybees where they never observed it before. Now I promise I wouldn't go too far down the rabbit hole with this. And since I think you've been bludgeoned at this point with the takeaway, I'm going to leave it here. But it can be helped left with the notion that perhaps the best path forward for our European Apis mellifera bees is to follow the path of their Western cousins. I, for one, would like to see a day where the workers are not as vulnerable to the impacts of Varroa, and then they can get off that treadmill of considering treatments to kill a bug on a bug. I guess there's one key thought that I have locked in the vault for my future choices, and I think the summary strategy coverage from entomology today stated it well they summed it up this way quote breeding varroa resistant honeybee stocks may be more sustainable alternative to deploying new treatments end quote i'll have links to the research articles discussed and also to the entomology today article that started this journey as well as a website that has a more elaborate explanation of apoptosis in the show notes Topic number three for this episode is mead part two. I guess it's kind of odd to have two fermented beverage topics in the stack. It's just a bit of serendipity. And I don't want you to get thinking things about me here, but I did say that I was going to talk about the process of making mead as we went along for the next couple episodes. And well, here we are again. Uh, Two things that we're going to talk about. The types of mead as well as mead characteristics and classification. In the last episode, we talked about why not just honey and water to make mead, and we had discussed that it's not that bad of a notion, meaning just honey and water, but the yeasts play a big role in any outcome, and more specifically, how you treat your yeasts, and it makes sense to 
go down that path of understanding all of that. But yet, when you talk about Mead, you really can't talk about it without having a more rounded background of it. So we're going to talk about variations. A major factor in the characteristics of the end product are ways that you can influence what your mead tastes like, especially when it comes to different formulations of making it. Another way to say that is other forms of mead in the marketplace abound. Variations of mead are produced by altering the honey through the addition of flavorings, the inclusion of ingredients. As an example, you can actually just alter the honey to something called a boche, spelled B-O-C-H-E-T. We all know that we're adding honey to a mead, but a boche style mead is made by first caramelizing the honey and then making mead from that. Flavorings are another way you can go. Extracts, teas, flowers, herbs, spices, wood pieces, like, you know, pieces of an oak barrel, hops, and more. And then you can go down the ingredient path. Choices are far and wide. You could add fruit juices, brewed coffee, hold, or pureed fruits, malt, barley, vinegars, and even more. The point of this is when you do these things, you alter the formulation of it, and it becomes more than just honey, water, and yeast, and you have to account for whatever you're putting in. I don't want to go down that path yet. I just want to say there's a class of meats using one specific example that's made with fruits or vegetables. Here's a few of them. A melomel, honey plus water plus various fruits, one or more. And it has to be a fruit. A piment is honey plus water plus grape juice. A sizer is honey plus water and apple juice. Morat, honey, water, and mulberries. Capsimel, honey, water, chili peppers a bragot or a bracket, honey, water, and hops, and or malts, kind of like a beer. And then you can go the other way, meads with spices, they're methligans. These are meads with added botanicals or spices. Examples include cinnamon, clove, nutmeg, rosemary, spruce, and so on. Beyond the labeled classifications, you might find that there are references to cultural mead types and styles. Here's some of the types and regional styles in alphabetical order, I might add. Oh, and don't hold me to the pronunciation. It's a few of these I'm positive. I am completely wanging it. It's going to be fun to give it a try, but it can be noted they're not spelled in any way the way they sound, and I'm probably not doing it right anyway. For fun, Akan, Asserglin, Blackmead, Bibmo. Bochet, Bochetamel, a Shoshun, Coffee Mead, Dangadar, I have no idea how to say that one, Davonyak, Verk, Hippocras, Medica, Medavina, Midas, Amayad. Mayad, by the way, I think it originates from Russia, comes in three forms. You can have an aged mead Mayad, a uh, drinking mead Mayad. And a boiled mead, my odd. But wait, there's more. There's oxymel, ofakamel, pitriya, potakara. 
I just wanted to go through this list not to kill you with it, but have fun with it. Rotomel, Asizma, Teja, Trojanok, and Weirdomels. Weirdomels. How's that? Okay, move along, citizens. Uh, that was fun, but it's worn out. Characteristics and classifications. I just want to go through a couple things about this. Uh, these are things that influence the profile of the drink, if I could say that. Like there are many styles of alcohol, meat can be produced with a moderate alcohol strength or with a significant punch or something in between. Really much of the alcohol potency is at the discretion of the formulation ingredients chosen by the mead maker. Like most alcoholic beverages on the market, mead is classified by its alcohol by volume or ABV readings. In correspondence to the ABV, terms have been established to give an indication as to the potency of the mead types. When it comes to describing mead and more specifically its alcohol potency, there are three common terms that infer its alcohol strength. The first one is called a hydromel. This is also sometimes referred to as a session. By my way of understanding, the alcohol potency is akin to a range that falls between a light beer to a conventional beer. Incidentally, if you take the word hydromel and deconstruct it, hydro infers water and mel infers honey. So it's a watered honey. Standard meats. The second one is given the pedestrian label of standard. The alcohol potency is standard akin to a range like a table wine. The third one and last one is a sack mead. S-A-C-K is how it's spelled in case it didn't come across cleanly. A sack mead has the punch of a distilled alcohol. When you create your formulation for a mead, one of the things you decide on the, on the outset is whether you're making hydromel a standard mead or you're going all out for a sack mead. Potency. Check. Given the characteristics of any kind of mead recipe, it should be noted that the final sweetness varies based on the ingredients or your process. Similar to how ABV is at your discretion, a mead maker can choose a number of options when formulating a recipe that will determine how sweet it is on the outcome. For example, they could simply start with more honey. More honey is going to leave more honey at the end. Or they could choose from various yeasts that may or may not leave more sugars in the final product and of course they could simply add honey to the final product to sweeten it up more that term is called back sweetening talking of sweetness and characteristics classifications as one might assume the mead industry has settled on some terms that classify and describe how sweet a mead is as well as some of its attributes to know where to put it so talking about the taste and style characteristics, these are some that classify and describe mead. For sweetness classifications, you have dry, semi-sweet, sweet, and finally you have dessert. As you might guess, something classified as a dry has a hint of sweetness, and something classified as a dessert mead is over-the-top sweet. Not necessarily bad in the mind, but you know, it's going to be sweet. As to attributes, mead could be attributed on the factors of sweetness, carbonation, strength, color, aroma, flavor, mouthfeel, 
honey variety and appearance. On that last one, you might hear it described as clear or cloudy or wavy or other descriptive visual cues. If you really want to get a sense of this karma, you could go to a mead judging score sheet. You could also look at a mead help tasting card and all the things they use to classify and describe meads to put it in its classification and categories. Now, all those attributes are kind of evidence, meaning I don't think a lot of us would debate what they mean. But when that being said, there's a lot of gray area to describing sweetness and whether something is slanted at a dry meat or a semi-sweet meat. Well, there's got to be a little more clarity to that. So let's come back to the sweetness classifiers and give them a little more descriptiveness. We'll start with dry mead. A dry mead generally would give you the following impressions. My understanding, and again, I'm going to just stop here for a second and say, this is me learning mead and things that I'm sharing with you that I picked up. Dry mead would be subtle, crisp, have honey overtones, and end with a dry finish. A dry finish connotes that your mouth is left a little dry and with very little notes of sweetness at the end. A characteristic of a dry mead is that it may just have a small amount of honey flavor and residual sweetness that borders on low to non-existent in the final product, but gives you a pleasant alcohol taste. As to aroma, a light, subtle aroma with notes of honey, especially if a specific type was used. Mouthfeel is another impression. A dry meat is light to medium, but a good one is not watery. Visually, dry meats are typically brilliant, light, usually clear, and have a high clarity. If you move on to semi-sweet meats, let's run down the same impressions. The flavor should be subtle to a moderate honey flavor. And it may feature varietal honey notes coming through, subtle to moderate sweetness. The aroma should be notable on the nose, especially with varietal differences possible. Mouthfeel should be medium light to medium with no lingering sweetness. And as to visual acuity, it can be clear to start to show some signs of body. A little more on the color. There can be anywhere from clear to Various golds, amber, some instances all the way to dark brown, but that's probably a bit unusual. Conventionally, most of them would be in the straw to gold range. Two down, two to go, a sweet mead. It's going to range from moderate to a significant honey flavor coming through. On the aroma front, you should have honey overtones and even some flower nectar scents coming in. As you'd imagine, the mouthfeel would be medium to almost full when conjuring up the sensation, not quite a dessert wine. And visually, the range runs the gamut. It could be clear to almost syrupy. That leaves the final one, which is a dessert wine. It's that sweet mead on steroids. Uh, you're going to have pretty significant honey flavor coming through. Dominant honey overtones floral again, if that's what is there, the mouthfeel will feel like a dessert wine. Thick, viscous, sometimes 
sometimes cloudy, wavy in appearance. Uh, again, syrupy. Doesn't have to be cloyingly sweet though. That's the interesting thing about the sweet and the dessert wines. They're alcoholic beverages. They're not cough syrup. And when you see people who rank them, uh, that is one of the things they're looking for. They're looking for a nice alcoholic beverage, but something that's just not cough syrup. That's my understanding of the categories. I think that's where I'm going to stop in this episode. This gives you a sense of what you're trying to produce when you're sitting down to pick a formula for a mead. You have some decisions to make in the beginning. And I don't know if this is sage advice, but it seems to me that common sense would dictate that you start with a basic mead and get that under your belt first. Then once you have the basic process and assembly instructions for the ingredients and feel comfortable with all of that, you might branch out to all these variations that I just let you know existed. I say that with two thoughts running through my head. The first one is, with a plain mead, there's no place to hide. Universally, I think it's said that one of the hardest things to do is to build a basic mead because, well, if it comes out wrong, you know it right away. Some mead recipes that add the other ingredients, like blueberries, for example, might taste okay as a blueberry mead, but underneath could be inferior because the mead process didn't go well. By my way of thinking, I'm going to try and stay with the basic mead first, take the hard road, and look to see if I can get on solid ground, and then I'm going to move on from there. Now, that doesn't mean adding blueberries to a basic mead isn't going to screw that process up, but, you know, let's not get ahead of ourselves. So taking what we just learned, it feels like the conventional mead should be made with a typical ABV of around 14% sweetness and a profile that falls into the standard category. I think that's where I'm going to end it right there. In the next installment, I'm going to go over some mead terminology, gravity measurements. It's fundamental and you're going to need to understand them. And there's other mead-making terms like lees and autolus and flocculation and more that you kind of have to have in your toolbox if you want to grasp the lingo required to follow the process. That's where we go next, Batman. Not to get ahead of myself, but that will be followed by the basic ingredients and information about nutrients, which is where we really get into the heart of the matter. So come on back in the next couple of episodes and I'll keep unlocking the journey to making meat. Well, how about that? We found ourselves at the bottom of the stack and we're going to turn to the local hive report. We've reached the cusp of spring and it seems a little early to me for some reason. The crocus decided they went out early this year. And on those handful of warm, sun-filled afternoons, our bees are devouring them in the backyard. Things are literally a buzz for the hives that made it through. And that statement tells you that we did not repeat last year's success of all the hives coming through. And to be honest, yeah, I kind of had that suspicion it would go that way when closing things down in the fall. We went into winter with six full-sized hives. Four of them came through. Pad 3, the famous 10-frame poly. Pad 4, the cedar hive with the flow hive box on it. Pad 5, and the 4-stack all-medium hive. 
And finally, pad eight to two deeps, one medium high, all on the grain scale that has the Russian bees in them. In the back row, the last two hives did not make the cut. As to the special hives, I checked the top bar and it's good to go. And I do believe, but haven't been in the Lands hive yet. So I'm not sure that it made the cut, but based on what I see from the outside, it looks like it did. Cautiously optimistic about that. When it comes to the new hives, the six over six poly on pad two is doing great, while the other two did not make it. The last category of hive that leaves the eight frame poly nukes, two of the three didn't make it. One of them did. I heard from Bob Kloss that the hive I placed at Valley Crest made it through also. Unfortunately, and as to be expected, the dinky collie in the Ware hive perished pretty early in the winter, but it does have three boxes of comb, which will make it a little less troublesome to get it going again. Now, given every hive made it through last year, you might think that I'd be disappointed with this result, but to be honest, yeah, I'm okay with it. And it takes a little explanation slash rationalization to understand if I just simply isolate the hives that didn't make it, it's a bit suspect that a bunch of them are poly hives, but there's actually a different root cause for their demise, and it has to do with the queen rearing program from last summer. If you've been following the program, you know that one of the things I want to try and do is get to locally adapted queens. And as such, every year I've been on a vigorous trajectory to try and learn how to do queen rearing and it's kind of okay but boy what a learning curve we bob Kloss and i did some queen rearing last year and we both agreed we weren't really enamored with the outcome to elaborate on that and to make the connection to these hives i placed the queens that we reared in these colonies and none of them took they emerged started to lay and summarily, all of the queens we reared were rejected in my apiary and superseded by the colony. Actually, I think one of the queens we reared made it through. That's the nuke box on pad number two. Ah, uh, you know, these, these bees emerged, the queens, built up to a moderate-sized colony, they got superseded when they had some brood from the new queens. And then I chased these colonies all summer into fall trying to get them to build right. I kind of had in my head since they were in poly equipment that even though they were a touch compromised, they weren't really big, burly, healthy, wonderful colonies. They were eking through in the fall that maybe they'd get some sort of advantage from the insulative properties of these hives and I could feed them into late fall, which I really did. But the outcome is clear. The root cause of the condition lies with the queens and it demonstrates how quality queens are instrumental for survival. Now, I haven't gone in to see if there was some sort of late Varroa surge or something like that. I have to take the reading of the bees and in fact... This afternoon, I might actually try and go in and take some mite washes from them. 
I've hinted this year that we will correct the errors in our ways, and I still intend to see if we can use locally raised queens. That hasn't changed from our own efforts. Just ones that are crafted during the apple tree blooms early in the season, not near the cusp of spring forage fall off and into summer like we did last year. So I mentioned in one of the previous episodes that Bob Claus and I already have our plans together and there's more than enough colonies that made it through to get things going and I'm sure there are some swarms in our future. So yeah, from a local hive report, it's okay. Not too bad. Uh, one of the things I inspected the colony on pad number four, which is the cedar hive. I did something really strange this year. I overwintered that with two deeps and the flow hive on top of it. I really didn't want to take the flow hive off and put it to the side. I left it on top. I really probably should have put it over an inner cover, but I left it attached to the hive. Don't if that thing isn't heavy as could be. When I picked that off and looked to see if the colony, you know, where it was, it, it is chock full. I'm looking forward to, as I said last fall, the anticipation of early spring and the warmth to get the thing operational again and turn the handles and see the honey flow for the first time. So yeah, there's something looking forward to there for that one. And I really would like to get that box off that stack and make it a more conventional hive this year. As much as uh, it was fun to play with, one and done for that flow hive. I'm going to take it off and put it away, donate it, put it in an archive, who knows what. But I also heard from my twin brother Keith that he and Karina's hives, two of the three made it through. He's not sure about the third one, but given what he described, I think it's not going to work. So... He'll have to take a split or whatever, put that third one back in service. But they did okay out there at the homestead, 519 honey. And that's kind of cool because we'll have another beekeeping season to plow through. And this being their, what, second, second and a half year of beekeeping, good for them. I guess there's just a couple closing comments to give to close out the episode and you know these will get better as we physically get hands-on into the hives we'll be able to give you more and more information about different things that we're seeing uh, a little more traditional local hive report i'm just happy to report we actually got into the bees cracked the boxes took a look and things you know for those that are doing doing their thing are pretty good couple news and notes things to close out the episode for closing comments. First one is Chester County, chescobees.org. Their conference is coming up March 12th. It runs from 8 to 5. It's a virtual one. If you're a CCBA member, which I think I am, 30 bucks, 40 bucks for non-CCBA, but whatever the cost, you get Sealy, you get Oliver, you get Lopez Uriba, Ian Stepler, Jamie Ellis, and others. There's 30 live presentations. There's four different tracks. They record them. And their registration goal is 400. They're working on that. Do me a favor. Go register for that. Be a part of it. You will not be disappointed. They really have amazing stuff going on. And, I, you know, it's worth seeing a couple more people that are in there. Michael Bush is in there. Dr. Jerry Bromenshank, talking about hive mannering. Steve Rapaski, single brood chamber, if you're interested in that. 
uh, Etienne Tardoff. I saw a presentation from him that he prepared in light of speaking to this. It's outstanding. Uh, you're going to get your money's worth, no doubt about it. Chescobees.org, right on the homepage, you can click to get registered for that conference. And you should do it. Uh, unfortunately, <laughs> can't participate in it. Bob Kloss and I are teaching a beginner's beekeeper course that day. I think I might register with it and then just come back and try and watch the recordings of it. Uh, darn. We usually go in person to this thing. Um, I'm kind of frustrated that it's not going to happen. But all right, moving on from that. I just wanted to throw something in here for the record. This is a bit of a blog and a journal for us. And uh, the other day, a really big box showed up for flowers. And, you know, when they showed up, I didn't order them. I love my wife, but I didn't order her flowers on this occasion. I thought maybe her mother sent them. But it turns out Chewy.com sent us a box of flowers because they saw that we canceled the order for our pet meds and stuff for our dog because we had to put our dog Julia down. I thought from a company standpoint, that's just an amazing gesture. And I mean, this is a really nice uh, flowers and a nice card and all of that. I just have to say from a customer service standpoint, that's the most incredible thing I think I've ever experienced. And it gives me a, a moment to just say thanks to them in public and also recognize that, boy, we miss our dog. Uh, feel for anybody who goes through that, the trauma of it. Um, we're not looking to replace her yet. We just want to kind of live in that way and it's been a rough year. We've lost our two cats and our dog all within a span of six months. And it feels a little lonely around here. But, you know, we've been joined by the critters. And I wanted to turn this to beekeeping. Last night, there was a skunk in the in the breezeway. And speaking of the breezeway, there were raccoons in there the other night. And have been visiting a couple nights in succession. They were after the wax I had stored there. I collect wax in the breezeway in anticipation of putting it in the solar wax filter, and they ate it all. There have been a pair of foxes living underneath our porch. One of them actually was dead in the yard. We don't know what killed it, but we've also seen coyotes recently, and the deer are standing physically on the patio. So without the critters, all of the things are close, and I have to wonder if that has an impact with things getting into the bee yard this year. So that'll be a watch, and I'm going to have to put the cameras back out. An interesting life living in the country, if you could call any part of New Jersey the country, but I'll leave it at that. Like our beloved bees, when beekeepers go together, they can accomplish great things. Thanks for listening, everybody, and we'll catch you next time on the Beekeeper's Corner.